0: section thirty three of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter nine continued later Augustan writers with johnson who succeeded dryden and pope in the chief place of english letters the classic movement had largely spent its force and the latter half of the eighteenth century gives us an imposing array of writers who differ so widely that it is almost impossible to classify them in general three schools of writers are noticeable first the classicists who under johnson's lead insisted upon elegance and regularity of style second the romantic poets like collins gray thompson and burns who revolted from pope's artificial couplets and wrote of nature and the human heart many of the writers show a mingling of the classic and the romantic tendencies thus goldsmith followed johnson and opposed the romanticists but his deserted village is romantic in spirit though its classic couplets are almost as mechanical as pope's so burke's orations are elegantly classic in style but are illumined by bursts of emotion and romantic feeling third the early novelists like defoe and fielding who introduced a new type of literature the romantic poets and the novelists are reserved for special chapters and of the other writers berkeley and hume in philosophy robertson hume and gibbon in history chesterfield and lady montague in letter-writing adam smith in economics pitt burke fox and a score of lesser writers in politics we select only two burke and gibbon whose works are most typical of the augustan i e the elegant classic style of prose writing edmund burke seventeen twenty nine seventeen ninety seven to read all of burke's collected works and so to understand him thoroughly is something of a task few are equal to it on the other hand to read selections here and there as most of us do is to get a wrong idea of the man and to join either in fulsome praise of his brilliant oratory or in honest confession that his periods are ponderous and his ideas often buried under johnsonian verbiage such are the contrasts to be found on successive pages of burke's twelve volumes which cover the enormous range of the political and economic thought of the age and which mingle fact and fancy philosophy statistics and brilliant flights of the imagination to a degree never before seen in english literature for burke belongs in spirit to the new romantic school while in style he is a model for the formal classicists We can only glance at the life of this marvelous Irish man and then consider his place in our literature. Life Burke was born in Dublin, the son of an Irish barrister, in 1729. After his university course in Trinity College, he came to London to study law, but soon gave up the idea to follow literature, which in turn led him to politics he had the soul the imagination of a poet and the law was only a clog to his progress his two first works a vindication of natural society and the origin of our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful brought him political as well as literary recognition and several small offices were in turn given to him when thirty-six years old he was elected to parliament as member from wendover and for the next thirty years he was the foremost figure in the house of commons and the most eloquent orator which that body has ever known pure and incorruptible in his politics as in his personal life no more learned or devoted servant of the commonwealth ever pleaded for justice and human liberty he was at the summit of his influence at the time when the colonies were struggling for independence and the fact that he championed their cause in one of his greatest speeches on conciliation with america gives him an added interest in the eyes of american readers his championship of america is all the more remarkable from the fact that in other matters burke was far from liberal he set himself squarely against the teachings of the romantic writers who were enthusiastic over the french revolution he denounced the principles of the revolutionists broke with the liberal whig party to join the tories and was largely instrumental in bringing on the terrible war with france which resulted in the downfall of napoleon it is good to remember that in all the strife and bitterness of party politics burke held steadily to the noblest personal ideas of truth and honesty and that in all his work whether opposing the slave trade or pleading for justice for america or protecting the poor natives of india from the greed of corporations or setting himself against the popular sympathy for france in her desperate struggle he aimed solely at the welfare of humanity when he retired on a pension in seventeen ninety four he had won and he deserved the gratitude and affection of the whole nation works there are three distinctly marked periods in burke's career and these correspond closely to the years in which he was busied with the affairs of america india and france successively the first period was one of prophecy he had studied the history and temper of the american colonies and he warned england of the disaster which must follow her persistence in ignoring the american demands and especially the american spirit his great speeches on american taxation and on conciliation with america were delivered in seventeen seventy four and seventeen seventy five preceding the declaration of independence in this period burke's labors seemed all in vain he lost his cause and england her greatest colony the second period is one of denunciation rather than of prophecy england had won india but when burke studied the methods of her victory and understood the soulless way in which millions of poor natives were made to serve the interests of an english monopoly his soul rose in revolt and again he was the champion of an oppressed people his two greatest speeches of this period are the nabob of arcot's debts and his tremendous impeachment of warren hastings again he apparently lost his cause though he was still fighting on the side of right. hastings was acquitted and the spoliation of india went on but the seeds of reform were sown and grew and bore fruit long after burke's labors were ended the third period is curiously enough one of reaction whether because the horrors of the french revolution had frightened him with the danger of popular liberty or because his own advance in office and power had made him side unconsciously with the upper classes is unknown that he was as sincere and noble now as in all his previous life is not questioned he broke with the liberal whigs and joined forces with the reactionary tories he opposed the romantic writers who were on fire with enthusiasm over the french revolution and thundered against the dangers which the revolutionary spirit must breed forgetting that it was a revolution which had made modern england possible here where we must judge him to have been mistaken in his cause he succeeded for the first time it was due largely to burke's influence that the growing sympathy for the french people was checked in england and war was declared which ended in the frightful victories of trafalgar and waterloo burke's best known work of this period is his reflections on the french revolution which he polished and revised again and again before it was finally printed this ambitious literary essay though it met with remarkable success is a disappointment to the reader though of celtic blood burke did not understand the french or the principles for which the common people were fighting in their own way a much more interesting work is thomas paine's rights of man which was written in answer to burke's essay and which had enormous influence in england and america and of note and his denunciations and apostrophes to france suggest a preacher without humor hammering away at sinners who are not present in his congregation the essay has few illuminating ideas but a great deal of johnsonian rhetoric which make its periods tiresome notwithstanding our admiration for the brilliancy of its author more significant is one of burke's first essays a philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful which is sometimes read in order to show the contrast in style with addison's spectator essays on the pleasures of the imagination burke's orations burke's best known speeches on conciliation with america american taxation and the impeachment of warren hastings are still much studied in our schools as models of english prose and this fact tends to give them an exaggerated literary importance viewed purely as literature they have faults enough and the first of these so characteristic of the classic age is that they abound in fine rhetoric but lack simplicity in the same year seventeen seventy five in which burke's magnificent conciliation oration was delivered patrick henry made a remarkable little speech before a gathering of delegates in virginia both men were pleading the same cause of justice and were actuated by the same high ideals a very interesting contrast however may be drawn between the methods and the effects of henry's speech and of burke's more brilliant oration burke makes us wonder at his learning his brilliancy his eloquence but he does not move us to action patrick henry calls us and we spring to follow him that suggests the essential difference between the two orators End of note. in a strict sense these eloquent speeches are not literature to delight the reader and to suggest ideas but studies in rhetoric and in mental concentration all this however is on the surface a careful study of any of these three famous speeches reveals certain admirable qualities which account for the important place they are given in the study of english first as showing the stateliness and the rhetorical power of our language these speeches are almost unrivaled second though burke speaks in prose he is essentially a poet whose imagery like that of milton's prose works is more remarkable than that of many of our writers of verse he speaks in figures images symbols and the musical cadence of his sentences reflects the influence of his wide reading of poetry not only in figurative expression but much more in spirit he belongs with the poets of the revival at times his language is pseudo classic reflecting the influence of johnson and his school but his thought is always romantic he is governed by ideal rather than by practical interests and a profound sympathy for humanity is perhaps his most marked characteristic third the supreme object of these orations so different from the majority of political speeches is not to win approval or to gain votes but to establish the truth like our own lincoln burke had a superb faith in the compelling power of the truth a faith in men also who if the history of our race means anything will not willingly follow a lie the methods of these two great leaders are strikingly similar in this respect that each repeats his idea in many ways presenting the truth from different viewpoints so that it will appeal to men of widely different experiences otherwise the two men are in marked contrast the uneducated lincoln speaks in simple homely words draws his illustrations from the farm and often adds a humorous story so apt and telling that his hearers can never forget the point of his argument the scholarly burke speaks in ornate majestic periods and searches all history and all literature for his illustrations his wealth of imagery and allusions together with his rare combination of poetic and logical reasoning make these orations remarkable entirely apart from their subject and purpose fourth and perhaps most significant of the man and his work burke takes his stand squarely on the principle of justice he has studied history and he finds that to establish justice between man and man and between nation and nation has been the supreme object of every reformer since the world began no small or merely temporary success attracts him only the truth will suffice for an argument and nothing less than justice will ever settle a question permanently such is his platform simple as the golden rule unshakable as the moral law hence though he apparently fails of his immediate desire in each of these three orations the principle for which he contends cannot fail as a modern writer says of lincoln the full rich flood of his life through the nation's pulse is yet beating and his words are still potent in shaping the course of english politics in the way of justice edward gibbon seventeen thirty seven seventeen ninety four to understand burke or johnson one must read a multitude of books and be wary in his judgment but with gibbon the task is comparatively easy for one has only to consider two books his memoirs and the first volume of his history to understand the author in his memoirs we have an interesting reflection of gibbon's own personality a man who looks with satisfaction on the material side of things who seeks always the easiest path for himself and avoids life's difficulties and responsibilities i sighed as a lover but i obeyed as a son he says when to save his inheritance he gave up the woman he loved and came home to enjoy the paternal loaves and fishes that is suggestive of the man's whole life his history on the other hand is a remarkable work it was the first in our language to be written on scientific principles and with a solid base of fact and the style is the very climax of that classicism which had ruled england for an entire century its combination of historical fact and literary style makes the decline and fall of the roman empire the one thing of gibbon's life that is worthy to be remembered gibbon's history for many years gibbon had meditated like milton upon an immortal work and had tried several historical subjects only to give them up idly in his journal he tells us how his vague resolutions were brought to a focus it was at rome on the fifteenth of october seventeen sixty four as i sat musing amidst the ruins of the capital while the barefooted friars were singing vespers in the temple of jupiter that the idea of writing the decline and fall of the city first started to my mind twelve years later in seventeen seventy six gibbon published the first volume of the decline and fall of the roman empire and the enormous success of the work encouraged him to go on with the other five volumes which were published at intervals during the next twelve years. The history begins with the reign of Trajan in A.D. 98 and builds a straight Roman road through the confused histories of thirteen centuries ending with the fall of the Byzantine Empire in 1453 the scope of the history is enormous it includes not only the decline of the roman empire but such movements as the descent of the northern barbarians the spread of christianity the reorganization of the european nations the establishment of the great eastern empire the rise of mohammedanism and the splendor of the crusades on the one hand it lacks philosophical insight being satisfied with facts without comprehending the causes and as gibbon seems lacking in ability to understand spiritual and religious movements it is utterly inadequate in its treatment of the tremendous influence of christianity on the other hand gibbon's scholarship leaves little to criticize he read enormously sifted his facts out of multitudes of books and records and then marshalled them in the imposing array with which we have grown familiar moreover he is singularly just and discriminating in the use of all documents and authorities at his command hence he has given us the first history in english that has borne successfully the test of modern research and scholarship the style of the work is as imposing as his great subject indeed with almost any other subject the sonorous roll of his majestic sentences would be out of place while it deserves all the adjectives that have been applied to it by enthusiastic admirers finished elegant splendid rounded massive sonorous copious elaborate ornate exhaustive it must be confessed though one whispers the confession that the style sometimes obscures our interest in the narrative as he sifted his facts from a multitude of sources so he often hides them again in endless periods and one must often sift them out again in order to be quite sure of even the simple facts another drawback is that gibbon is hopelessly worldly in his point of view he loves pageants and crowds rather than individuals and he is lacking in enthusiasm and in spiritual insight the result is so frankly material at times that one wonders if he is not reading of forces or machines rather than of human beings a little reading of his history here and there is an excellent thing leaving one impressed with the elegant classical style and the scholarship but a continued reading is very apt to leave us longing for simplicity for naturalness and above all for the glow of enthusiasm which makes the dead heroes live once more in the written pages this judgment, however, must not obscure the fact that the book had a remarkably large sale, and that this of itself is an evidence that multitudes of readers found it not only erudite but readable and interesting End of section thirty three